Amen. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Romans chapter 7 tonight. Uh, again, our last time, uh, a couple of weeks ago now, we took last week to talk about Easter, but our last time in Romans 6 was a perfect complement, I think, and build up to the Easter season, and we're going to continue to ride that wave over the next several chapters. Uh, I said this a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago at this point, Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 are four of the greatest uh, uh, passages of Scripture you could possibly read if you want to come closer to Christ uh, and grow as a Christian, look no further than those four chapters. I would encourage you to read them again and again and again. You'll never go wrong studying these four chapters of the Bible because they are some of the most rich theologically and the most powerful uh, spiritual resources you can find as a believer. All the Bible's inspired. All the Bible is awesome and incredible to read, but these four chapters, I put them on a shelf maybe higher than most. Um, I, I fell in love with this book, this passage probably uh, 15 years ago uh, when I was studying the Bible. Romans obviously is an incredible book. Many people love it and quote it, uh, but uh, really my my preaching style and my uh, my really focus in preaching and pastoring uh, really is rooted in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. So if you want to know kind of why I do what I do and why I say what I say, uh, it's because it's biblical most importantly, but it's rooted in what I think is the practical theology found in these four chapters. And tonight, we'll, I think, even further show you uh, why we do what we do as Christians, why we believe what we believe as Christians, and how we interpret the Bible. Um, I believe the Bible, anybody can open the Bible open the Bible up and read it and find the things they need to find out. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a teacher to get the basic gospel, but it is important how you interpret the scriptures uh, because there are wrong ways to interpret it. And there are, there is a right way to interpret it. Uh, there's different opinions about this and that, uh, but I come down pretty hard and pretty narrow on the subject tonight. So I think we'll find a lot of help tonight if we will receive what God has for us. And it's, it's really only good news and only helpful, so I don't think it'll be hard for us to receive. Um, again, we've looked at Romans in, uh, 5 and 6 uh, in this little section, and we've talked about our new life in Christ, which Paul specifically ties to the resurrection. Sunday, we looked at those verses from Romans 6 that we spent a few weeks on about being raised with Christ, how we were buried in sin, we were raised in life. His resurrection is the... Uh, impetus of our salvation and really the, the fuel that keeps us growing and moving forward. Um, and if we've placed our faith in Christ, we have been raised with him. And that should make an incredible difference in our lives. Uh, we talked about what it looks like. And a few weeks ago, we kind of broke it down like this, that the goal is that we would accept our new identity in Christ, that we are in Christ, which means we have died to sin. We have been uh, given um, a, a new and fresh and powerful life in him, that we are no longer under sin. We are under grace. And that makes a difference in us and about who we are. We are a child of God. And uh, that, that means that we can, uh, we can embrace a new approach, uh, that we can live lean into God and we can follow his spirit, trust his spirit and walk in his steps. And again, uh, Romans 6, it's all, it's all, uh, it's all about uh, walking in his spirit and following in Jesus' steps. And we talked a few weeks ago uh, about uh, yielding ourselves or leaning in to who God says we are and, and not giving our members or not giving our hearts and minds over to the things of the flesh. 
And it's important that we make this distinction because we, we, we might get a little bit confused here. Um, this, this subject should not be uh, something that puts pressure on us. Um, this is not about our performance, that when we're trusting in God and leaning into him, putting our weight on him under his grace, in his spirit, this is not pressure on us. This is not about our performance. This is about reminding us that we have been given power from God, power within us that brings life to us and brings from within us that new way to live brings out of us that new way to live so this is not about pressure and performance it's about power and potential so keep those two words in mind even as we go forward tonight Uh, there's a direct connection between us and God and it's the spirit of God between us and Jesus the Holy Spirit sent from him to be in us and we're going to hear even more about that next week in our Bible study in Romans 8 So again, this is not about legalism. It's especially not about legalism, which we'll talk about that tonight. It's not about legalism. This is about a message of grace, a message of freedom and liberty. It's not about what we have to do. It's about what we can do now that we are in Christ. No longer in sin, no longer under sin, under grace, in Christ. Christ. You may say, well, Justin, if this is grace and freedom, uh, why the stern message about what we should do as followers, uh, about being alive in him and you know, not obeying the lust of our flesh, but walking in the spirit? That sounds like commandments. And of course it is. It is instruction. Um, and you may say, well, you know, if, if this is all grace and all liberty and all freedom, why the importance of the church? Why the importance of studying the Bible? If this is all hands off and trusting and, and freedom and grace, well, what's the importance of being in church and studying the Bible or hearing the word of God taught? And, and I think those are good questions. Um, if those are legitimate questions that you may have. Uh, and, and I think Jesus best uh, responds to those questions. Jesus said this in John 8, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So yes, you're saved by grace. Yes, you are given freedom and liberty beyond the restrictions of religion. But the only way we're ever gonna realize what it really means to be in Christ is to abide in the word of God that we might have those things that we are, have access to brought to life within us. We will not know the truth unless we abide in the truth. And that's what gives us that ability that we are missing apart from Jesus. He said this in John 15, similarly, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So uh, again, we have the vine and branch analogy. I think a more modern approach or a more modern picture would be uh, plugging into an outlet, that there is no power to a light unless it's plugged into a source of light. We are not able and not powerful in and of ourselves. We need that source and that source is Jesus through the Holy Spirit we can come to life and we can find that liberty and that freedom that we were uh, without and, and lacking otherwise so again this is about activation about what God has put in us. This is about awakening, uh, who, this continual awakening, uh, coming to terms with who we are in Christ and what we, are, we have access to and what is accessible to us. Uh, and by all means, what is expected of us 
more importantly, what we should be desiring as believers. Jesus said, if you're mine, you will abide in me. And if you're not abiding in me, if you don't love me, then you know, there, there, there clearly is something, there's a disconnect. There's something that's not legitimate. There's something that's not real about that profession. Now, I make this distinction because we just barely got into this last time, but we're gonna dive in uh, both feet tonight uh, because Paul has talked about how we are not under the law anymore. Now, I think we understand clearly what it means to not be in sin because we are forgiven of sin, delivered from sin, and now we're in Christ, we're under grace. But when Paul throws around this phrase, you're no longer under the law, that might make us turn our head a little bit because why is he all of a sudden saying, or why is he saying that the law isn't important uh, when, when, you know, when we're supposed to be doing what the law or what the Bible teaches that we should do? And this is where we can easily get a little confused and easily get off the, the, on the wrong path. So tonight we're gonna take a slow walk through this subject that is rooted in Romans Seven, but uh, he's already said this, and he's going to say this emphatically tonight that the law, the law, as in the Old Testament law, the law is not the solution for our character and behavior deficiencies, as in the things about us that are not as they should be. The law is not the solution. Now, don't throw rocks at me yet because we're going to explain this. The law of God, the law of God, which of course is true. We'll get to that. The law, as true as it is, is not the solution for our character and behavior, as in the things in our minds and the things that we do from our minds, our character and behavior deficiencies. Paul is drawing a line between law and gospel, law and grace. And we've learned this already, but we're gonna learn this even more tonight, that Christianity is not about following rules. It's about following Jesus, and there is a difference. Christianity, Jesus is not a taskmaster. He is not saying do and don't. He is not cracking a whip, forcing us or commanding us to do this or do that. Christianity is not about following rules. Christianity or Jesus is not a taskmaster. He is a savior, and there is a big difference in the two. There is a difference, and if we confuse the two, if we suppose that Christianity is just another religion, we will not reap the benefits of salvation. And the reason why I think this is so important because so many Christians don't get this. And it's not because they just stumbled into this, it's because churches led them into this or led them in the wrong direction. But let it be very clear, Christianity is about following Jesus and Christianity is about coming to a savior. There's a difference between Christianity and religion. Most importantly, religion Religion teaches us to say things like this. I must do better. I failed and I've got to do better. It's on me that to make this right. It's in me to do better. Religion says I must do better. I am doing better. Religion says yesterday I was this, today I'm that, tomorrow I better be this. Religion says I must do better. I am doing better and I have done better. Religion says I, 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 I. And you better believe this is easy for Christianity to get a little bit dirty with and get its hands mixed up in. Religion teaches us to say, I must, I am, and I have, but there's a difference in Christianity. Christianity says Christ makes me better. In Christ, I can be better. By Christ and through Christ, I have done better. Do you see the difference? First off, in Christianity, all the glory goes to God. Religion makes it seem like there's something we can do to somehow better ourselves. That's moralism. That's not 
salvation. That is, I'm gonna do this because somebody told me I must do that. I'm gonna work hard enough and I'm gonna find a way. But Christianity says there is no way in and of ourselves that only through Christ can we be made not just better, but whole. Secondly, not only does the glory go to God this way, but secondly, there's a supernatural help in Christianity. Whereas religion says it's your, it's your attempts and your efforts that make you better, Christianity says it's the supernatural help of Jesus that makes you better. And here's, what, here's why, and here's what always happens in religion. In religion, we find what we can do and we hide what we can't do. You see, if we get into the religious system and, and we're all in this and we've all been in this, religion uh, never is successful at making us completely better, but it may, we may find ways to look better in certain areas. And, and religion will boast about what we have done and what, we, what it has done, but religion is very good, really, you know, a master at hiding about and whispering about what it has not done. You, you want to know this? You know why denominations, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with denominations, but you know why denominations are very loud about what makes them different than the other? Because religion boasts about the things that it's good at and the things that it does better than somebody else. And you know why denominations will never promote themselves or, or, or will never admit, well, there's some things that we don't do as good as somebody else. You know why? Because religion whispers about what it doesn't do well because it doesn't want you to see that. It wants you to be distracted by what it thinks and what it appears to be doing well. And, and all the while, we still feel the need for a higher means of justification, which we can find in and of ourselves. So we are forced to judge others so that we might find, uh, feel better about ourselves. So, so I say this to, 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 to make this statement. If your version of Christianity, and there's only one version of Christianity, right? But if your version of Christianity features or looks like that, then you've got the wrong version. If it's about what you do and how well you've done it or how you've done it, and it involves inspecting and comparing and contrasting and judging, that's not Christianity. That's just the same old religion that's been fooling people for thousands of years. Christianity is better than that. And best of all, it actually works it actually makes a difference because it's Christ within us that's making the difference. So Romans 7, why did I say all this? I say all this to say this. Romans 7 is going to show us in detail how unreliable and actually counterproductive the law is and religion is at actually getting us free from our sin and from our change. Romans 7 is going to make it very clear how we can be free, and it's going to do so by breaking us free from the law as our source of justification and as our source of guidance. Now, it was never successful at first doing it anyways. It was always tempting but unsuccessful at doing, uh, at justifying or guiding as well. But make no mistakes, it, it is going to reaffirm, and if you're wondering or worried that I'm gonna go off on some heretical pathway, let me confirm this to you or reaffirm this to you. Romans 7 is gonna make it very clear to us that the law is inspired and it is useful for Christians just maybe not the way you thought it was or have been taught that it was. So listen to Romans 7, verse 1 through 4. If you didn't like what I had to say, you might really not like what Paul has to say. So Romans 7, 1 through 4, listen to what he says. 
Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, who are Jewish and are under the law or were under the law. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? And he's referring to the law of the land or the law, uh, the institutions that are set in place. And he's going to use marriage as an example. And this was a mar- the law of not just the Jewish world, but just the general world back in the day and to some extent till, till today. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. And, and, and the short of that is that you're married to someone and if the other, one of the two passes, then you're no longer married to that person legally and, and, and all the different you know, uh, you know, ways that marriage binds you and, and holds you accountable to somebody, even in the legal world or in the financial world and all the other things. When someone is no longer your spouse, when they're de- dead, then you're lose that connection or lose that, that, that obligation to. Verse three. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So he's using this example of, of, of a woman and it could be just the same a man, but a woman who gives herself to somebody else uh, while they are no longer given to somebody, to the, to the previous husband. Uh, and he's making a distinction that we as people have been set free from one thing and been given to another thing or another someone actually. Verse four, therefore, so if that confused you, don't worry, he's gonna make it simple. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. As in you were bound by the law of God, the law of God as your, uh, in terms of judging you, in terms of determining your, your, stand, your stance with God, your connection to God, you were bound to that law and you have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you, were, that you may be married to another, to him who has raised you from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. Now, let me explain this. I think it's pretty simple. That in Christ, remember Romans 6, you were buried with him and you were raised with him. So your sin was buried with Christ. And also your obligation to the law was buried when Christ fulfilled the law and died. And when he rose again, you are now joined to him. And what does Paul say again in verse 4? You have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, the physical, literal body of Christ. This isn't talking about the church, it's talking about Jesus' body. He was buried that you may be married to another, to him who has raised, who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. When we come to Christ, we have died to the law, as in the law no longer lords over us, its 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 power, uh, its ability to condemn us or attempt to justify us when we come to Christ we have died to the law now us Gentiles we were never under the law but the Jews were and and we'll talk about the Gentile part in a little bit but the Jews died to the law and we as as people under God's rule of course still applies we have come to Christ we have died to the law and here's why we've died to the law because we have confessed our inability to keep it because if Jesus if G, the reason Jesus came is because we couldn't keep it, right? And when we come to Jesus, we confess we can't keep it and we've realized that it is insufficient at saving us. Can we all agree on that? I think we can. The law does, we don't have the ability to keep it and it is insufficient to save us. So Paul says, we've come to Jesus, we've died to the law and we've been married 
to him. We've been made one with him. And, and what does verse four end with? In order that, so that we should bear fruit to God. The only avenue for us to bear fruit to God is that we be saved, joined with Jesus, distinct from the law, mind you. Verse five and six. Now listen to what Paul says here. This is a little bit, this might be controversial, but he said it, not me. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused or instigated by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. As in, because of our sinful nature, the law actually produced or caused us to sin. I didn't say that, Paul said it. That our sinful nature, sinful passions aroused or awakened by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit to death, as in to cause us to sin and cause us to be dead spiritually. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. Pretty clear, isn't it? Died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness, that's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the oldness of the letter. So what does Paul do here in these two verses? He claims that first the law aggravates our sinful nature. Nothing wrong with the law, something wrong with us, right? The law aggravates and instigates and stimulates our sinful nature. But we have been released from the bondage of the law through the Spirit. Now more on that in a minute, but I wanna, I wanna first jump into the next passage because it's gonna make sense of all the things you may be confused about, I promise. Verse seven through 14. What shall we say then? And if you're thinking, well, what's, I don't know what's going on. Paul says, don't worry. I'm going to make even more sense of this. It might confuse you some more first, but I'll make sense of it later. What shall we say to this? Is the law sin? Certainly not. So don't misquote him. This is a Jewish scholar. This is a proud Jewish scholar. Paul was a Hebrew. Paul was a Pharisee. But of course, he was saved from that. But he's still saying the law, it's not sinful by no means. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, as in the law is what taught me right from wrong. I didn't even know there was sin until the law told me that. For I would not have known covetousness or greed or lust unless the law had said you shall not covet. So the law told me that was wrong, and next thing I know it, there's something in me that wants to do that, and I only knew it was wrong because I was told it was wrong, and that thing in me that something in all of us when we're told we shouldn't do something sometimes it wakes that desire to do that something up doesn't it and now you see what Paul's talking about but sin and this is a big statement sin taking opportunity by the commandment as in there's something in us that when we receive the law sin seizes the opportunity to actually cause it to produce something contrary to what God intended Sin, seizing an opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. But for apart from the law, sin was dead. So Paul says, had I never learned the law, I wouldn't have known that was a sin. And I might not even would have wanted to do what was sinful. Now, try this at home, or you've already tried this. You've raised children and grandchildren. Tell your kids not to do something, and they're going to want to do that something. And until you ever told them that something was wrong, they didn't even want to do it. Right? That's not just your kid or your grandkids issue. That's your issue. It's our issue. Do you see what Paul said there? I know that's a bit mouthful, but do you see what he said? Sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me a evil desire. And if not for the law, I wouldn't have ever even done the evil thing. I would have never had the evil thought. Again, not the law's fault. 
It's our fault, but he's making, he's gonna make sense of all this. First time, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Paul says, before I knew the law, I didn't realize there was a sin. But when this, I heard the law, sin said, you think you're going to keep that? All that did was expose you to what I am going to do with you and do through you. Sin speaking. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So he makes it clear in verse 10. The commandment was supposed to bring life. But what did it do? It just brought death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and it killed me. And he's talking about his spiritual life or he had no spiritual life. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy, just, and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin, that it might appear sin or appear, or he'll, he'll say this in a minute, was producing death in me through what is good. So that, now this is a big underline this if you want to underline anything. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So you wonder why God gave the law knowing this was going to happen? This is why. So that your sin might become exceedingly sinful. As in he might make it clear to you just what is in you. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold. Understand now, we got a lot to unpack here, but we can do it in just a few minutes. So three things I wanna bring out of this passage that's pretty, I think a pretty good summary of the law, not just for believers, but for all people. The law's content is holy. Everything God says is holy, but the law, the thou shalt, thou shalt not, what's right, what's wrong, the law is holy. God is holy, what he says is holy, what he believes and what he stands for is holy. The law's content is holy. The law's purpose, why did God give the law? To reveal our unholiness. He gave it not to save us, but to reveal to us that we needed to be saved. It couldn't do it. And this might be a little bit of a controversial thing, but again, Paul said this, not me. The law's function, as in what it actually does in us and what it produces through us. The law's function, unfortunately, unintentionally, is that it leads to sin. It doesn't have to, but we're sinful, so that's why it does. Now, let's talk about this. A few things here. Paul is not trying to cause us to have an adversarial relationship with God's law. He's trying to cause us to not look to it as our source of salvation. That's a big, difference, big distinction. He's not trying to make us think that any portion of the Bible is not important. Imagine how his first century audience felt. They were Jewish. Of course, they thought this was crazy. So if we feel a little bit uncomfortable, think about what they felt like. He's trying to get us to understand that we cannot go about trying to overcome sin by a means that has been proven to not provide a remedy. So let's go through these one at a time. The law is holy. The law reveals God's holy nature and everything it prescribes and commands reflects God's holiness and God's holy response to sin in some way. But the purpose of the law was never to rehabilitate us back from sin, but to reveal our sin to us. Is that clear? The law was never about rehabilitating us, it was always about revealing our sin to us. Full stop, that's what it was given for. Now, does that mean the Old Testament or parts of the Old Testament suddenly are useless for us or have never been useful for us as Christians? Not at all. Let me explain. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant serves a few specific purposes. Let's talk narratively first, as in the story it tells. The Old Testament's narrative purpose, as in the story that's being told from Genesis to Malachi, it reveals our sin and drives us toward our Savior. The whole purpose, when you get to the end of Malachi, you're supposed to be 
panting for a savior. If you can get through Malachi and you think, well, I'm okay, I don't need a savior, you've read it wrong. Or you have not read the New Testament to show you, hey, there's a bigger picture here. The law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is about revealing your sin and driving you towards a savior. It's not supposed to leave you full. It's supposed to leave you empty. How does Israel end the Old Testament? In captivity, losing everything they had. Oh yeah, they get back to Israel and they rebuild the temple, but what do they say when the temple's rebuilt? It's not like we thought it was. It's dead, we're dead, we need some help. And then Malachi says, see you later. And 400 years can't go by and you open up to the New Testament and that savior is on his way. The Old Testament narratively reveals sin, drives us to our Savior. But what about the practical belief that every verse of the Bible has something to do for something to teach us? Absolutely, the Old Testament is still practically important for every Christian to read, every Christian to study, every verse has something to say to you. And here's the practical way to interpret the Old Testament. It must be filtered through, understand, understood through, and applied through Jesus. That the law is useless apart from Jesus making sense of it. It is not about saving us, but there is a practical interpretation, but it's only available through Jesus. As in we are to look for Christ in every text, every page to further our faithfulness to him and further depend on him. So when we're dealing with the law, we hear the commandments. They lead us to Jesus. Jesus shows us that there's only one true way to honor God through him. And he makes sense of the commandments, whether they be relationally, morally, financially. He shows us how we actually can obey them and honor him with them. Now, Jesus summed up the law and its commandments in terms of how we should apply the teachings in our lives. And, and you'll remember this. Jesus does so in a very reduced way. Jesus reduced the entire law down to this. A new commandment, not another commandment. The word new there is not neo as in next. It's Kanye, which is the Greek word for brand new, replacing the old. It's car replacing the horse and buggy. And new commandment I give to you. This isn't number 11. This isn't number 620. This is a new commandment on this. Hang all the others. Love one another. You mean, Jesus, if we just love people, that's going to fix the problem? That's going to that's going to fulfill the law? Hey, not only did Jesus say that, but everyone who followed him said that. Jesus, number one disciple, Peter, says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, this is your lifestyle. Jesus' brother James said, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus, Peter, James, Paul, and Galatians, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. Now you may wonder, what about love God? Jesus taught that our vertical love is authenticated by our horizontal love that our love for God is made clear and authentic by our love for others. So again, you can sum up the whole law like this, love one another. And here's the thing about love. Love does not sin against anybody. It can't. Love does not sin against. 
because you see someone on the other side that God loves and you're told to love. So you can't sin and you cannot justify that sin. Love does not sin with, because even if they agree with you, if you know what's right and you know what's wrong, you cannot even consensually sin with them. Love doesn't look for loopholes or excuses, which is what law keeping is all about. That's what Paul's alluding to here when he says sin seizes the opportunity through the commandments. The commandments don't lead to sin, but our nature uses the commandments to justify sin. That's the problem. Religion is as much about what the fine print doesn't say as much as it is what it does say. And let me explain. Oh, the law says you shall not commit adultery, but what all does that apply to? I mean, is that just between a husband and wife? You know, is that what sexual sin is? I mean, is this wrong? Is that wrong? And if the law doesn't say it specifically, well, I guess I'm okay to do it. That's what religion says. Religion says, oh, it might say that, but what doesn't it say? Because you might have a loophole there. The law says give 10% of your profits, but is that net or gross? And, you know, I brought home X amount of money, but I spent Y amount of money back into my business or back into my home. So technically, I didn't really profit X. I profited X minus Y. So I don't have to give God all of that, do I? Oh, the law says take the Sabbath day off, but it didn't say anything about hiring somebody to work for me on the Sabbath. Huh? Oh, I'm a landlord. I don't work on Sunday, but I still collect money on it. Right? The law looks for loopholes. Oh, the, the law says leave the four corners of your crops to the poor, but oh, I tithe to God for my four corners. So I've given those four corners to God, so now I don't have to give to the poor, and I don't have to give anything else to God. Oh, I guess I found a way around it, didn't I? The law says love your neighbors, but, but who is my neighbor? Oh, they're not my neighbor, so I don't have to love them. Because if they were my neighbor, they would be loving God. And if they don't love God, then they're not my neighbor and I don't have to love them. But Jesus, of course, turned that on his head, didn't he? You, you see the point? The law is perfect, but we're not. And our deceptive, sinful nature will corrupt what God has said and look for ways to get out of doing anything that he says. And we walk away feeling as if we're justified. The law is not unholy, but we are. That's why it can't save us. If our sinful nature is up to no good, even the holy law will not be spared corruption. And, and this may be even in an even bigger way it seizes the law and uses it for our undoing. When we start law keeping, we become scorekeepers. And y'all know what I'm talking about. When we, begin, when we start law keeping, we become scorekeepers. And when we become scorekeepers, we become self-justifiers. Oh, well, I've done this for God lately, but you know, they haven't done that for God. And you know, I've been doing really well and I know I could do better, but I'm doing better than them. And I've given this and I've done that. And have you heard what they've done? And hey, I might be not doing the best, but I'm not doing the worst. When we see the law as a basis for justification and righteousness, we begin ranking and categorizing. And this is where we begin looking around at other people. Classic example, Luke chapter 18. You should read it sometime. Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee says, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy down there. I'm a, I'm a good person. I tithe. I worship. I keep the commandments. I keep the Sabbath. But that guy, man, he's a piece of work. He robs people and he's immoral. He never worships. He never ties. 
thank God I'm not like him. Now, that's exactly what the Pharisee said. But the tax collector beats his chest and bows his unworthy head and says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And you know which one Jesus said was saved? And which one Jesus said was lost? That's what religion does. So the way Paul says, sums it up in verse 12 and 14 should make it pretty clear. He says, the law is holy. The commandment's holy, just, and good. But sin in us keeps it from being what it was meant to be. We know the law is spiritual, verse 14, but I am carnal, we are carnal, sold under sin. Our sinful nature will never allow us to use the law for good apart from Jesus and apart from the New Testament. And, I, and I'm not saying you shouldn't read it. I am saying that I think the New Testament gives you everything you need to understand what to do with the old. And it serves as a greater foundation for our moral and ethical code. And this is what Paul says in Galatians to sum this up. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. But, or so then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, not by works, by faith in the one who did the work for us. So we are no longer under a guardian. Now we're gonna wrap all this up. The next passage is going to further emphasize why we must be totally dependent on Jesus, confessing our sins, seeking his spirit to empower us. Because Paul is going to give us his own personal experience with failing to overcome sin because of a reliance on the law rather than a savior. Paul's gonna say, I wanna show you what happens when you rely on the law and not a savior. And this is what led me into realizing that, hey, I needed, I needed some, some help. In some ways, his experience is everybody's experience, but I, I think it'll be eye-opening for a lot of us to hear him break this down because I think it exposes that we still rely on self-justification in a lot of ways, and we haven't totally surrendered to Jesus in a lot of ways. So in conclusion, let's listen to Paul as he wraps this chapter up. For what I am doing... I do not understand. Now, I'm reading New King James. The King James of this is a tongue twister. It's God's word. I'm not trying to say anything bad about it. But if you read it and you're confused, don't feel bad. It, it, the Old English is really little tongue, you know, really a mouthful. Even the New King James is a little bit difficult to read. So I'll try to break it down as best I can. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do or what I want not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform it, how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice." Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in the law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, worried against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members or in my body. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now in verse 15, he asked, I think we, can, we should ask this question because Paul says, there's things that I do that I don't want to do. Have you ever found yourself repeating things that you wish you didn't do or couldn't do, didn't, wouldn't do? Now, when we think sin, we think immoral and unethical things, but I want you to think broader regarding your sinful nature. 
And it includes immorality and unethical things, but this is also about your attitude and your attributes of your heart. Things like fear and worry, impatience, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, carelessness, selfishness, jealousy, greed, lust. I, I could keep going, but I won't. The sinful nature that bogs us down. Do you ever find yourself in a cycle of characteristics or behaviors that you wish you could break free from? You know they're wrong, but you can't get free from them. Then you know what Paul's going through here and what he's describing. In verse 16, in our own admission, we wish we could break free. We agree there's a standard that we, are, but we fall short of, which is God's law, which of course the law, even Jesus took it and said, hey, you've heard it said of old, but I say unto you, so Jesus even made it even more extreme about how far, far we fall short. And in verse 17, Paul identifies the source of our woes, that it's not himself, but it's sin that's in him and sin that's in us. Not excusing us of our accountability, but making us aware of the problem. And then in verse 18, he says this, For I know that in me nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me, but how to perform it, I do not find. So he says, I have a desire to do what is right, but I lack the ability to carry it out. And if you go to the law to try to find your way in your own way, in your own strength, in your own moralism, the law will only deceive you and twist you into doing less right than you thought you were going to do. Paul says, I have a desire to do what is right, but I lack the ability. Now here's where Christianity exclusively exposes us to truth and offers us grace. Religion excuses our inability as long as we want to do better, but it leads us into embellishing our weakness by emphasizing other strengths, by hiding behind things. Christianity gets it out in the open. I'm not doing what is right. I lack the ability, but that's not an excuse. Of course, our nature is to be sinful, but we believe that a supernatural resurrection power is available to us, equally available, level ground. Another reason why we often in our flesh cling to religion because it makes us feel like we're ahead or below somebody else, ahead of everybody else. He retreads some ground, verse 19 and 20. So we see this continual acknowledgement of our sinful nature, which we've, ex we've learned extensively, the law cannot cure and will only exacerbate. If you think religion has fixed it, it's probably just blinded you to it. Now, how does he finish this off? Verse 21, I find a law that, I find in a law that evil is present with me. And he's talking about just something he feels, a, a law or something that's binding him. Evil present with me, the one who wills to do good. As in, I wanna do better, but I can't. Our want to is hindered by our can't do. He says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against my mind, bringing me into captivity to sin. I think a lot of believers are right here. They know there's a better way, but they've never experienced it because they're still mixing and matching religion and Christianity, still combining old and new. And if we're being honest, there's a lot more old in us sometimes than there is new but this is where Paul shows us that the new way is the only way. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? Who will deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's who. We need a savior. We have a savior. We need supernatural power to help us overcome our sinful nature. And we have that power in our risen savior. Now in Romans 8, one through eight, is gonna take this even farther. In summary, the law 
cannot redeem us and it cannot reform us. Our nature is too sinful. Our nature is too fallen. However, that's not an excuse. The, this brings us under the emphasis that we need salvation and that Christ has provided salvation for us. So we must cling to Jesus, not to religion. So let me ask you in closing, would you describe your approach to God as religious or relational? And if you, are, if you would describe yourself as spinning your wheels, constantly trying to do better, but falling short, trying to do better, falling short, trying to obey, but not getting successful, if you find yourself constantly looking over your shoulder and comparing yourself, judging others, trying to make yourself feel better about you trying to look down on others, then that means you're still going about it in a religious, legalistic way. And no wonder you've not gotten any help because you're clinging to a law that cannot save you. Christianity is a religion and that will actually make us better and produce within us a lasting, true change. And we'll get into this more next week. But only in Christ can you break free once and for all, free from religion, free from sin, full of life. Take it from Paul. The law's great, but we aren't. We need more than rehabilitation. We need more than a lecture. We need more than rules. We need a savior. We need a relationship that we, in which we are dependent on Jesus and constantly trusting in Jesus. We will never be righteous and we will never find righteousness in and of ourselves. We need the righteousness of God given through Christ. And that only comes through a relationship with Jesus. Only then can we actually break free. And only then do we even understand what the whole Bible offers to us. Freedom and salvation in full. Don't miss next week. We'll go into part two of this very important conversation. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for showing us in your word how to understand your word because your Bible, all of it's true, but we've got to make sure we read it right and understand it right. Lord, we find it very clear in the Old Testament that you are holy and we aren't and we can't obey our way back to you. Only through Christ and in Christ are we saved and justified. Lord, protect us and save us from following into religion, which is about trying to do better, but never actually getting better. Taking credit for what you do and looking down on others, which only separates us from you farther. Lord, would you open our eyes to Jesus and show us that in him, we not only find what we should do, we find the ability to do it. And through him and a relationship with him, we take hold of supernatural resurrection life that helps us make sense of all of your word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for showing us the way. Now help us to cling to Jesus because he is the way. We ask this in his name. Amen.